As we head towards uh, opening up the Word and listening to our sermon today, uh, I encourage you to open your Bibles if you have, otherwise we have it up on the screen and we're now going to read Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus who though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Thanks, Linda, for that reading, and good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you. I'm just back for the first Sunday after some holidays, so it's, uh, it's been a number of weeks. I hope you've all had a fantastic summer. Um, mine was Mostly good. Uh, just after Christmas, I got eight days of food poisoning, which wasn't fantastic. Uh, but I'm still here. <laughs> Praise God. Now, uh, because this is my first Sunday back, I didn't realize that we were having all the kids in with us this morning. So what I'm going to do today is just uh, cut my sermon down a little bit, and everyone said amen. Uh, <laughs> so what I'll do today is just the first part of Philippians 2, and then next week we'll look at the Christ hymn, which starts at verse 5. Uh, and I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit more next week. But we are starting this series, this year out, in this series in Philippians, and we are into week two. Uh, if you missed last week, you can go onto our YouTube channel and listen to Linda's message, which was fantastic. But what I want to do this morning, just before we jump into Philippians 2, is a quick recap. Uh, and I want to ask the question, what is the book of Philippians about? And I think, for me... The central idea, the key verse of the whole book is from Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. It's not just that I follow Jesus, but for me to live 
It is Christ Jesus, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, I'm sure many of you have like a life verse that you have on your fridge or on your toilet door or whatever, and you know, you read it every day. That's your life verse. I wonder if any of you have picked Philippians 1.21 as your life verse, as the motto for your life. To live is Christ, the most important thing. Everything is centered on Jesus. And to die is gain. We don't often talk about death in those terms. It sounds a little bit like the New Hampshire state motto, give me freedom or give me death. Except that for Paul, freedom was not defined in political terms, but by following Jesus. Actually, it's even stronger than that. Uh, Throughout his letters, he calls himself in Greek, not just a follower of Jesus, but a doulos of Jesus, which is translated a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ. Or or as he says in 1 Corinthians, uh, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's how dedicated uh, Paul was to Jesus. That's how submitted he was to Christ. He's saying, I am his body and soul. Everything about me belongs to him. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And since, as we know, when we're baptized, it's a symbol of death, of dying to ourselves, of being buried in our old, from our old life and then being raised again in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We're already dead. The old has gone and the new has come. So in the sense, theologically speaking, all of us should be able to say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain because we have all already died. And so death, our physical bodies, the physical death is nothing to be afraid of. That's why Paul goes on to say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it is on the slide, if you go on living, sorry, if I go on living, that will mean fruitful labor for your benefit. But if I'm to die, I get to be with Jesus, which is far better for me. But since it will be more useful for me to stay here and help you, for your joy and encouragement, that's what I'll do. So this is his conclusion at the end of chapter one. But isn't Paul being like a little bit overdramatic here? I mean, why is he talking about his impending death uh, like this? And it's because, as you probably know, he's writing from a prison cell. He has been arrested, bound in chains, and he's suffering greatly for the gospel. And he's really unsure of what's going to happen next. Like each day is a surprise whether he's going to live or die. So he's living in that very liminal space of not knowing what the future holds. But for him, that's nothing to be afraid of because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet one thing um, is clear, as Paul says, everyone who is there in the prison with him knows that he's there because of Jesus. He's not wallowing in misery. He's not bemoaning his state of affairs. Uh, But since his guards and his fellow prisoners are a captive audience, literally, he's kept on announcing the good news to them. He's preaching day and night about his hope in Christ. Whether they want to hear it or not, Paul is preaching the word to them. And although you'd have to say that Paul's situation doesn't appear to be a particularly good advertisement for the gospel, now does it? Paul in prison, in chains, suffering for his faith, this is not 
a great advertisement for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. His life doesn't seem particularly enticing or enviable to any of us, and it's because in our culture, we're used to preachers telling us that if we come to Jesus, then uh, our lives will be richer and happier and healthier and more productive and more successful, we'll become better versions of ourselves, right? It's the gospel as defined by capitalist aspirations of the 21st century, and since we live in a culture of the big me, as David Brooks of the New York Times puts it, and this is, I quote him here on, on the slide, the meritocracy wants you to promote yourself. Social media wants you to broadcast a highlight reel of the best parts of your life. Your parents and teachers were always telling you how wonderful you were, how you can be anything you want. Every Disney movie you've ever watched has told you that if you want to succeed, you just need to find yourself. Be yourself, follow your dreams, live your truth, you do you. Now, I don't think we realize how profoundly this has shaped our expectations of what a good and meaningful life looks like. I think as 21st century Christians, uh, whether, we're, whether we're Christians or not, um, that vision of life has profoundly shaped us from top to bottom in terms of what we expect life will be like, uh, what success will look like, what our relationships will look like, what a meaningful life of integrity will be, including, as Christians, our understanding of the gospel. And that's why Paul's life is so confronting. I don't know about you, but I find Paul's life incredibly confronting because he's pretty much the opposite of everything that David Brooks is expressing there. Um, and yet reading the letter in one sitting, which I did a, a number of times over the holidays, you can't help but feel, it's visceral, the overwhelming joy and thankfulness that just flows from Paul's life as he talks about the hope that he has in, in Christ and the gift that Christ is to him. Despite his sufferings and hardships, like he's constantly amazed at the love of Christ. Every day he's amazed by it. And it drips off the page, and it's affecting when you read it. So if you haven't read Philippians, I encourage you to go home maybe this afternoon, open it up. It only takes about 20 minutes, maybe less, just to read the book through from start to finish. And I, and I encourage you just to listen for that amazement, that joy, that overwhelming courage and hope that Paul has in Jesus despite what he's going through. He's not upset at what he's lost for Christ's sake because he's too busy giving thanks for all that he's gained in Christ Jesus. And that's why he lands the first chapter with Philippians 1.27. He says this, it's on the, I think I have it on the slide, whatever happens, whatever happens in your life, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens in your life, whether you have an easy life or a hard life, whether you go through uh, success or trouble, whether life is good or bad or otherwise, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves worthy. What does that mean? Well, that's really what chapter 2 is all about, Paul explaining the why and the what of a life that's worthy of the gospel. So what I'm going to just, just do the first part this morning. First, why should we do this? Why should we desire to live a life worthy of the gospel? And this is where Paul says in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Has anyone here this morning experienced any encouragement from being united with Christ? Anyone? What about um, any comfort from his love? In dark days, have you felt comfort in the love of Christ, or if you've had any common sharing in the Spirit, that when we're worshiping here together, and it's amazing that we get to stand together and share together in the life that we've received in Christ Jesus by the presence of the Spirit. That's amazing, isn't it? It's truly amazing that we have a ground, that we, a foundation that we all stand on together. If any tenderness and compassion, friends, have you experienced any tenderness or compassion from Jesus at any point in your life? This is the why, because God loves you. And he has been good to you and kind to you. And yes, I know, sometimes we go through the battles, as we were singing about before, and we're waiting for the victory. Nevertheless, and I certainly can testify to this, and I'm sure many of you can as well, even in the midst of those dark days, I have experienced the promise of verse 1, the tenderness of God, the compassion of God, the presence of God, the love of Jesus. And so if you have experienced those things, This is what Paul is saying. If you've experienced those things, then you know that the only possible response, if you want to live a meaningful life with integrity, the only possible response is then to try and emulate in your own life what you've experienced in Christ. That's the only response that has any integrity at all. Otherwise, we're just living a lie. As Peter will say, sorry, no, John will say in one of his letters, 1 John, if anyone says they love Jesus but they hate their brother or their sister, well, then they're a liar and the truth is not in them. In other words, if you've experienced these things from Christ, the only possible response of integrity is that you will desire to offer them to others, to live into them as much as you possibly can. So verse 2 to 4, this is what we're called to. Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's unity for the sake of Christ by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Now, I don't think this is meant to be a should that's placed on us like some burden of the law from the outside that's intended to weigh you down and break your spirit, but it's, it's the only true response um, to the heart, uh, you know, response of the heart to the compassion of Jesus. If we want to abide in Christ and continue to live in the joy of Christ, as the Mandalorian says... This is the way. So how many of you have a bucket list? Anyone here have a bucket list? Ever sat down to write one out? You know, maybe it's to walk the the Machu Picchu, uh, or to drink champagne on the top of the Eiffel Tower, or to spend a year living in like a Mongolian yurt, um, or go dog sledding across the Arctic Circle. I don't know. What's on your bucket list? None of those are on mine, by the way. They just... I just thought they sounded cool. Um, Now, all those things are fine. They're good, wonderful, whatever. But do you also have what David Brooks, whom I quoted earlier, calls a moral bucket list? A moral bucket list. And here's what he writes 
in an article from 2015 called The Moral Bucket List. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I encourage you to go look it up. It's fantastic. But I'm going to quote a bit of it, and it's a long quote, which I know when someone reads a long quote, there's a temptation to drift. Don't drift. Let's pay attention. He writes, A few years ago, it occurred to me that there were two sets of virtues. The resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace, what you've achieved in your career. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral, whether you were kind, brave, honest, or faithful. Were you capable of deep love? I've been to a lot of funerals, and I can testify that this is true. And when people focus on the resume virtues at someone's funeral, it means that their character stunk. There's nothing good to say about the kind of person they were, and everyone just focuses on their achievements, then they were probably very successful in life, but a terrible person to live with. I've seen that many, many times. We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate any sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build an inner character. But if you live for external achievement, such external ambitions are never satisfied because there's always something more to achieve. The years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It's easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve, don't we all? You figure, as long as you're not obviously hurting anybody, and people seem to like you, you must be okay. And this is the kicker for me, but you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you and those incandescent souls you sometimes meet. So a few years ago, I set out to discover how those deeply good people got that way. I didn't know if I could follow their road to character. I'm a pundit, more or less, paid to appear smarter and better than I really am. But I at least wanted to know what the road looked like. I came to the conclusion that wonderful people are made, not born, that the people I admired had achieved an unfakeable inner virtue built slowly from specific moral and spiritual accomplishments. If we wanted to be gimmicky, we could say these accomplishments amounted to a moral bucket list, the experiences one should have on the way toward the richest possible inner life. So that's just a taste of the article. But of all the virtues that Brooks believes should be on your moral bucket list, have a guess which one is number one, the first and most important moral virtue. It is, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, humility. It is humility. And this is what he says. This is the last time I'll quote David Brooks this morning. Anyway, all the people I've ever deeply admired and profound, are profoundly honest about their own weaknesses. They have identified their core sin, whether it's selfishness, the desperate need for approval, cowardice, hard-heartedness or whatever, they have traced how that core sin leads to the behavior that makes them feel ashamed. They have achieved a profound humility. 
which has best been defined as an intense self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness, a profound humility which is an intense self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, notice, it's not thinking badly about yourself, right? That's not humility. But it is being honest with yourself by asking, am I actually living simply to serve my own interests? I think that's where humility begins, where you ask yourself that question. Am I simply living to serve my own interests? Or do I have a heart of compassion for others and desire in my work, in my life, in my relationships to serve the interests of others? That's where humility begins. And I think then that leads to a determination not to downplay your gifts or your talents or your abilities or your career capabilities, but to use the gifts that God has given you for the sake of other people, not for your own aggrandizement, not for your own power and position or prestige, but you bring the best of yourself, the best of what you have, the best of what God has given you, the best of what you've developed over years of hard work, and you bring that to all that you do so that others might be blessed. I think that's humility. I think what David Brooks then says is profoundly right, but it's really not that different, actually, from what Christians have always said, uh, and particularly in the third and fourth centuries, the, the, the monks that we now call the Desert Fathers and Mothers, who divided, devoted their lives to service and prayer, said that humility was the most important of all the moral virtues and was the foundation of all spiritual progress. So humility was a way of living in right relationship with God and serving our neighbors without being swayed by the need for attention or praise or recognition or honor or power. Humility was believed to be necessary to attain purity of heart. This is what they taught based on Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. So if you want to see God and know God, then the pathway to that is humility. And lastly, it was the key to spiritual warfare. Uh, and, the, and the, the thing that enables you to resist temptation. So there's a monk by the name of St. Anthony of Egypt who once said, I saw the enemy spread out over the world and I said, groaning, what can get me through all such snares? And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me, to me humility is the only way through. And I think this is so right and we know it. If you're a person who is not seeking your own interests, if you're not captivated by pride, then you are a person who's very difficult to tempt. You will be uh, protected. You won't be vulnerable to the temptations of the evil one. He will have very little influence over you if you've killed your pride, which is why 1 Peter says, the enemy is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He helps the humble. He helps those who cry out to him for help, who recognize their weakness. So for those early Christians, the key to humility was, and I think still is, the recognition of our total indebtedness to God 
in all things. Like everything we have from God is a gift. Uh, All of life is an undeserved gift from a generous God. And if everything we have is a gift from a generous God, then we uh, can live our lives with open-handed generosity without fear because we know that God is good and that everything we have is just borrowed from him anyway. Are you with me? Okay. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the meaning of discipleship. To take up our cross and follow Jesus means to come and die. And if we're in Christ, we have already died. Now, this this grates on us, doesn't it? It grates on us because it is the opposite of everything that our culture has trained us to believe. It's the opposite of everything we've been told as we were raised in this culture. It's the opposite of how our culture works. So if this makes you uncomfortable, then welcome to the Christian faith. Let me finish with this. C.S. Lewis once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Now, I think there's great truth in that, but I also think that true humility must actually begin by thinking about ourselves by an honest assessment of who we really are, what we really desire and what we're truly living for. That's where humility begins. You look yourself in the mirror and you ask yourself some very hard questions. What is it that I am truly living for? Who am I serving? Am I out for my own interests or am I truly, honestly, with integrity, seeking the interests of others? If we can begin there, then... Even if the answer is, yeah, I'm a totally self-centered, selfish, pride-filled person who doesn't care a hoot about anybody else, at least if you can be honest with yourself about that, then you can begin to deal with that. You've identified your core sin, and now you can apply the blood of Christ to it and experience freedom. Deal with it. Repent. Get on your knees before the Lord. Ask for forgiveness and ask for help. And I think then... In that space, in that place of humility, we can say, Lord, what I want you to do now is lead me, guide me, show me where the needs are that I'm being called to address. And there are millions of needs, and they're all overwhelming. But if we start with Jesus, if we start with humility, let's just go back to the last slide of the Bible reading, if we could. This is what Paul says about the promise for those who are willing to humble themselves. He says this, God will guide us, he will lead us, for it is God who works in us to will and to act, to fulfill his good purpose. I think that recognition, that all of life is a gift, that we can't address all the needs, but we can bring what we have and trust that God will use it to multiply it like the loaves in the fish and do what we can't, and yet we still bring what we can, trusting in a good God who is able to do the miraculous, even with our small offerings. And that is true for every single one of you. No one is excluded from this because the way of humility is the way of saying, Lord, in my life be glorified and let me bring the best of what I have so that you might be uh, praised and honored and your kingdom established. So let me pray for us this morning, and I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Lord, I pray as we think about the coming year and what lies ahead for each one of us, I pray that we will approach this year with a radical dependence on you, 
that we'll acknowledge that you've given us so many beautiful and wonderful and good things. Least of all, Lord, or not least of all, is the incredible grace that we've received in your compassion, your mercy for each one of us. And you see each one of us. You know each one of us. You know what we're called to, what we're capable of, the gifts that we've received, the, who you've made us to be. And I pray that for each one of us as we approach this year and the challenges that it may bring and the triumphs, Lord, I pray that we'd walk with you in humility. We trust you for your power, your presence, your provision. We would not downplay the good things that we've received, but use them to honor you and serve others. I thank you that being humble is not self-effacement. It's not having a low self-esteem. It's not thinking that we're less than. No, it's an acknowledgement that my life is a gift of God and that all I have belongs to Him. And as I walk with you, Lord, in submission, trust, help me to be faithful. Help us all to be faithful, to bring the best of what we have into the lives of others, into our workplaces, into our families, into our communities, into our relationships. And in each of these places, may you show us how to serve you faithfully how to love you well and to love others well. And trusting that, Lord, as we do that, though we don't have all the answers, we don't have everything we might need, in you we do. And you will provide for us according to your riches in glory. And we don't need to be afraid. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.